Welcome to the archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Newspapers were the primary means of mass communication in 19th century America. They not only told the news, but they also pervade the social and political ideas of the times. Horace Greeley was one of the most colorful and outspoken newspaper men of his day. Read and judge yourself was a slogan of his, almost as well known in his lifetime as his slogan, Go West, young man, go west, is known now. I spoke with Horace Greeley through the personage of Chautauqua scholar David Fenimore during the 1996 Democracy in America Chautauqua series that visited Ukiah, California. I asked Horace Greeley what he meant when he said, If you have no family and friends to aid you, turn your face to the great west and there build up your home and your fortune. You see, I believed in settlement in an organized, efficient sort of way. And what I promoted in my newspaper columns, especially in the 1840s, was a, what I called association which would be a, a cooperative colonization effort by families, farmers certainly, mechanics as we call them in my day, mm -hmm. carpenters, machinists, and so mm -hmm. forth, uh, settling in an organized and cooperative and fraternal fashion. Uh, by doing so, they could accomplish so much more than any isolated pioneer possibly could. Well, would this organization um, have its own genesis out in the West, or would, it, would you promote that a certain type of social organization be adopted? Well, let me explain perhaps a specific case as an illustration. Uh, my, some people call him my follower. He certainly is not my follower, but he did come to me for advice. Nathan C. Meeker came to me uh, immediately following our great American conflict and was organizing, wished to organize a cooperative colony on the basis which I uh, had laid out in the Tribune. Uh, he called this the Union Colony and he had his eye on some land uh, near the Cashlapudra River um, in the western Kansas Territory, an area which I was familiar with uh, from my travels across uh, the uh, uh, territories uh, toward Denver City. And Meeker came to me and said, I wish to establish this colony along your principles of association. And I advised him to find subscribers uh, who were willing to subscribe portions of the necessary capital. Let's say $100,000 would be necessary. Mm -hmm. I also advised him to avoid the sorts of people who I had seen become the downfall of other such socialist experiments. Uh, the, uh, those who um, perhaps were disaffected with life as it is and thought perhaps they would be more fitted for life as it should be. Uh, the ne'er-do-wells, uh, people who are very impractical and selfish perhaps. Should move into this colony? Should avoid, he should avoid, he should avoid accepting subscriptions from such okay. people. The downfall of Brook Farm, uh, Sylvania, the North American phalanx had been in the sort of person that it attracted people without the necessary mechanical skills, mm -hmm. people who were perhaps too selfish to cooperate in, a, in a, a fraternal sort of colony. Well, what are these principles of association that you speak of, Horace? Basically speaking, I believe that men labor most efficiently and certainly most happily together and not mm -hmm. separated. 
and therefore I believe that society would best be organized along the lines, you might call it, of a joint stock company, such as Meeker was attempting, and indeed did succeed in organizing, where all bring in what they are capable of bringing in, whether it be money or skill, and all draw from or profit from the association in proportion to what they have brought in. I was accused of being a communist, but I believe that, that communism is an idiotic way of organizing such a society because communism presupposes that each shall draw in equal measure. And how can a, um, a farm laborer be paid on the same basis as a skilled mechanic who brings so mm -hmm. much more in? Yet the labor of the farmer should be just as dignified as that of the mechanic. And herein lies the difference. Putting this in a time frame, you make reference to the Great American Conflict, which I presume is the Civil War? Yes. So we'd be talking about the early 1870s. Uh, this would be uh, immediately following, this would be 1860, 1866, I believe, is when Meeker came to talk to me. He might mm -hmm. have uh, sent me a letter earlier than that. Uh, I was writing about association as early as uh, 1841 in mm -hmm. some of the first issues of the Tribune. Well, let's jump back, if we can, to the mid-1840s. I, I want to ask you why you were opposed to the annexation of the California Republic and the purchase of the territory of Alaska. Well, I believe that the United States would best flourish with a strong national identity. And I was skeptical, first of all, of of diluting our land when we had yet failed to thoroughly organize and develop the territories west of the Allegheny Mountains. Uh, why should we add yet another great swatch of land, which would perhaps be a drain on the national treasury and have no immediate benefit other than to the slave power of the South, especially California, I saw as perhaps a, um, a plot by the slaveocracy of the South, by the cotton states, to extend this disgraceful institution further west. Well, in relationship to Alaska, you were buddies with William Stewart in the creation of the newspaper, The Log Cabin. And wasn't he the main uh, proponent of purchasing Alaska? I must admit that Seward and I had a, a falling out as I wrote to him in the early 1850s in a letter. I said, I hereby dissolve the firm of Greeley and Seward, speaking metaphorically when I say mm -hmm. firm. Uh, Seward, I believe, had fallen prey to that great disease among politicians of uh, governing national policy in regard to his own interests and the interests of his party rather than the interests of the Republic. And we deferred on, on many issues and uh, perhaps my opposition to Seward's uh, uh, Alaska purchase was as much because of my distaste, my growing distaste for the man himself as for uh, any judgment of whether this would be good or not good for the Republic. As an experienced newspaper man who has dealt with many politicians and observed many politicians, why do you, find, why do you think politicians fall prey to this form of behavior that you characterize? I believe it is difficult to avoid the pressures of partisanship when one attains a position and office by uh, adhering to the principles of a great party. It is difficult at some point to differ from the principles or the leaders of that party based on one's own conscience, one's own perception of the qualities of men, their intelligence, their morality. and. Uh, I always believed myself in serving the Republic by an honest and fearless criticism, 
So even when my own Whig party was in favor, let's say, of that rapacious war against Mexico, which resulted in the annexation of territory in which we sit right now, even then I was called a traitor and the other editors in New York were writing such sentiments as, my country right or wrong, this is the true principle of patriotism. And I replied, this is a, a silly and dangerous doctrine, for if, if one's country be in the wrong, it only compounds injury to assist her in that course of error. Honest and fearless criticism is the desire to present this what led you to become the newspaper man that you are? I believe the newspaper had a role in rebuking wrong and in exerting a helpful influence on public morality. How do you choose as a newspaper man what is important and worthy of putting in your paper? According to the dictates of my own conscience, which, which I was always true to. I must say I've been accused of many things, among them what my enemies called isms, my various mm -hmm. hobbies and changes of interest from one scheme of belief to another. But through it all, I believe one golden thread ran. And this was my concern with elevation of the working masses through the diffusion of intellectual freedom, industry, and morality, and the abolition of slavery, idleness, ignorance, and vice. So within that, you would include free and universal public education? Certainly. Uh, the common schools are very important. I argued against the Archbishop of New York, who wished to establish uh, separate state-supported church schools for the Irish immigrants, wishing to instruct them in their Catholic religion. I argued that these, these schools were the province of civic education, not religious instruction, which should take place at home and not at the public expense. Sticking to this concept of honest and fearless criticism, you presented what you believe to be honest and fearless, and you were attacked by some because you attacked them. Tell us about how that evolved, how the attacks on you shaped your subsequent presentations of your criticism. Well, you must understand that even though I differed publicly with many of my profession, many editors, such as that witless, dirty squirt of water, James Gordon Bennett of the New York Herald, or that escaped state prison bird, Webb of the Courier and Enquirer, when we were in difficulty, we did assist each other. When the Tribune offices caught fire in 1845, we put out an issue the next day, even though our facilities were completely annihilated because Bennett of the Herald opened his press rooms to us. We came in, used his type, used his frames, used his presses, and turned out the Tribune. Even though he was the other paper in town? One of many, one of, mm -hmm. one of 30 other papers, most of whom were sympathetic to the liquor traffic, the brothel owners, the other, other Democrats. Mm -hmm. Why do you think he did that, let you use his equipment? We cooperated. In fact, Bennett and myself and several other editors founded the Associated Press during the Civil War in order to uh, aid the free flow of intelligence from, from the war zone and later from other parts of the country mm -hmm. and the territories. So, so some have argued that our newspaper wars, as they were called, of the 1840s were but a ploy to 
extend circulation. In, later in the 1840s, I had a public debate with a former employee, Henry J. Raymond, one of the few college-educated reporters I've ever hired, who opposed my ideas of association, calling them socialist and Gramist and Fourierist and so forth. And we had a uh, exchange of views on this, on these notions of mine, where he attacked me as being a Fanny Wright man and a, um, a, a, a danger to, to democracy, mm -hmm. and in which I attacked him as being an unreasoning hog and a nincompoop and a selfish, marble-hearted hypocrite. And after uh, six months of this, our, each of our circulations had uh, soared considerably from people buying the newspapers to find out what we would say next. I want to take a moment and say that we're talking with uh, Horace Greeley, a famous American newspaper man who uh, presented many ideas, uh, some that were accepted, some that were uh, held to be scandalous in the mid-19th century. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Horace, I understand that you felt that with the common person having a voice in society, in a voice in how government was run, uh, that we would have a society that was highly unstable. I don't believe I ever publicly stated that, Barry, but if you wish, I thought that perhaps if the masses chose to remain ignorant and drunken and immoral, certainly they would not be equipped to pronounce on the great questions of state which face us. But if they were in the town meeting expressing their views, seeking to change the status quo for reasons that they believe appropriate, was that a, a forum and a, and a means of changing government that you would support? Yes. When I was growing up in my, my uh, New England boyhood, I apprenticed to a printer in East Pulteney, Vermont. Perhaps you've been there. And I came to town at age 16 from the nearby town of West Haven, Vermont. I had read everything I could get my hands on up to that point since the age of three. I was reading newspapers a few years after that. And I joined the town lyceum. As I was learning the printing trade, I joined the town lyceum, which was a uh, association or a club, you might call it, of doctors, lawyers, merchants, businessmen, and farmers in town. There was no class mm -hmm. distinction between us. I was an apprentice the judge, the lawyer, the farmer, would stand shoulder to shoulder uh, if we could talk in a convincing way, if we had facts, statistics, and opinions at our fingertips, we would debate these issues on an equal basis. I gave mm -hmm. my first political speech at the age of 17 in the mm -hmm. first district schoolhouse there on the second floor. They restored it. It's wonderful. You should see it if you're ever in East Pulteney, Vermont. And I was treated as an equal. They called me the town encyclopedia. Uh -huh. And they'd come to me and ask me, I believe that my newspaper, my Tribune, would be the means by which any American working person could attain that same level of knowledge, that same degree of intelligence by which they could stand up in a public forum, not the saloon or the, or the gambling hall, certainly, but the, the lecture or the public meeting and, and debate, discuss these great questions. Well, you editorialized, as I understand it, shortly after the Dorr Rebellion in 1842 in Rhode Island, that voting was not an inalienable right, but a boon granted to those the government deemed qualified. 
Well, this may have been an early opinion of mine. Certainly, I reserve the right to change my point of view from then, time to time. Then, did you change your point of view to universal suffrage without the government setting standards of qualification to vote? I believe so. Uh, impartial suffrage was my rallying call for Reconstruction after the Civil War, which of course included the black man, which I had been arguing for suffrage for black men as early as the 1840s, when I said that when Many white men are drunken and ignorant, but are allowed to vote. It is illogical to deny the vote to a black man for a similar reason. So then the ignorant drunk, or ignorant and or drunk, should be able to vote? Unfortunately, yes. I have come to the conclusion that limitations on suffrage are more injurious than impartial suffrage. Although I would certainly hope that those who voted, uh, unlike some of the Irish immigrants bribed by drink by the Democrats, uh, that those who voted were informed and, of course, followed the sensible policies of the Whig Party or the Republican Party. When you're seeking to influence someone to vote a certain way, using your newspaper as the uh, method of influence, w is it better, in your opinion, to appeal to the passions of the readers or express an intellectual idea in persuading them to vote? Since I hear you, by innuendo, criticizing a, a persuasion of voting, or to vote, with a drink. Certainly, but I believe these are two separate passions, an intellectual but, passion and a bodily passion, or a lust, or a vice, I would call it. But, but I'm, I'm asking appeal to, to a passion versus an expression of an idea in an attempt to persuade someone to vote, leaving out the people who might be... Uh, uh, often a lustful pursuit. I believed in a full and frank expression of my opinions. If you read my editorials in the Tribune, which I understand are still available if you hunt for them, you can you can read my my editorials, Whigs of New York, we must have a great public meeting to oppose this law or to repeal this law. My former employee, Raymond, went to, to found the New York Times. And the New York Times, he believed, should be a newspaper that presented impartially and judicially this side of the issue and that side of the issue. And this infuriated me, the shilly-shallying around. I told Raymond, you see both sides of the issue so clearly you can't tell them apart. <laughs> Horace Greeley, I want to thank you for joining us here on Radio Curious. But before we go, I want to ask you the question I ask all my guests at this point of an interview, and that is, can you tell us of an interesting book that you've read lately? I would recommend to all your listeners to read Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America. Horace Greeley, thank you for being here on Radio Curious. Thank you, Barry. And David Fenimore, welcome to Radio Curious. Nice to be here, Barry. How is it that you chose to assume the persona uh, a channel, if you will, with Horace Greeley. That's a popular word here in Northern California, isn't it? Seems it seems to be. I heard Bob Dole bragging the other day that uh, his wife was so smart that Eleanor Roosevelt was trying to contact her. <laughs> well, Greeley was chosen for this project uh, because of the overall theme um, concocted by the organizers in Southern California, and Democracy this is in America. The Democracy in America, Chautauqua. Right, right. And, and Tocqueville in Democracy in America, the book, um, which was released in this country in 1838, argues that one of the safeguards of the system of democracy is the free press. Uh, one of the social safeguards, not, you know, aside from the legislative uh, checks and balances. And um, 
the organizers wanted a representative of the free press, you know, in other words, in this period of time we're looking at, immediately during and after Tocqueville, who best exemplified not just the benefits or the good that's embodied by a, uh, by a free newspaper, in that case you would be talking about newspapers, mm -hmm. but also the evils. And it's challenging for me to see Greeley, you know, as such a compassionate, uh, wide-ranging, uh, industrious individual to also get a grip on some of his limitations, which as you were um, getting at, I think, very perceptively in some of your questions, were that Greeley was not averse to slanting the issue to, um, to suit his own side or his own beliefs. So when they chose Greeley, I think, for this project, uh, and I, I was offered the opportunity to audition for Greeley, um, which I accepted, I I thought that, well, here's a chance to, to, to sort of see both sides. As Tocqueville says, the free press is mingled good and evil. Mm -hmm. It can do very great harm. It can also do great good. And you can't have one with the other. You can't have the benefits without the excesses. Mm -hmm. uh, once again, Tocqueville is, seems to be arguing from the point of view that a neutral press, or what Greeley would call a gagged and mincing neutrality, is not as useful as a uh, lusty, uh, full-hearted expression of opinion, that this is what galvanizes people to action, whether for or against, and not um, some kind of perhaps uh, uh, false impartiality that, that seems to assume that there are two equally good sides to any issue and it's up to you to sure. decide, that it's more of an engaging kind of journalism to uh, do what we call today advocacy journalism. And, and to feature that prominently. Now, Greeley, like you know, any other newspaperman, liked the mask of impartiality. He would often pose uh, as a neutral observer or a neutral reporter or try to give the devil his due. But really, when you read between the lines, compare his positions to the issues of the day, you see he took a definite tack, a definite line, and uh, pursued that. Although, in Greeley's case, he would change his mind so frequently, and more so as he as he got older, progressed in his career, it was hard to tell exactly what he felt. A lot of what he uh, felt and wrote early in his career seemed to have been dictated by his moral beliefs and principles and his New England upbringing and instincts. Later in his life, he became more and more prey to that same kind of political expediency, that same kind of cynical manipulation. That we were talking of in relationship to Stewart? Yeah, yeah, Seward, yeah. Seward. So he, uh, he's an interesting study, and um, like most people, I had just heard of Greeley based on Go West, Young Man. And I'd mm -hmm. also run across in a used bookstore this um, book that I, I would recommend to people uh, to read as well, uh, Greeley's Overland Journey. Much of what he wrote, including his autobiography, is, is painfully ornate and over-detailed, and uh, some of his editorials are the best reading, but you can't get them without looking through a microfilm reader and wrecking your mm -hmm. eyes. But An Overland Journey, published in uh, 1861, I believe, that's, uh, there are references in the tabloid there, is a very readable account of his journey by first railroad, then steam, and then uh, stagecoach from Chicago to San Francisco. And his observations, his analysis of the frontier, his uh, um, encounters with Indians and miners and roughnecks and all sorts of people.
I'd like to ask you a current question, and that is your impression of what's happening to uh, diffusion of knowledge in America now with the mega corporations becoming bigger and bigger and owning more and more of the newspapers and the television stations and the radio stations. This is a problem and widely cited as so, especially with the deregulation and this sort of mm -hmm. thing. Uh, the conflicts of interest are numerous and sometimes so subtle it's hard to tell uh, who's on what side or as a friend of mine says, uh, who's holding hands with who in the cookie jar. Sure. Uh, I think I mentioned earlier today we had another conversation and um, when we saw Twister, the movie on the cover of Time magazine, I think it behooves every uh, reader of Time to know that Time Warner is, has a financial interest in the success of the film. And therefore, having that movie foisted on us in kind of a pseudo-news way, as this is the most significant thing this week, I think is at bottom pretty cynical, and it ought to make you look with skepticism on time. So then how is the reader to sift through this information and decipher the point that you bring out, that time is promoting Twister, or that the owners of the publications are promoting their own economic interests? Um, the dean of the uh, communication school at my alma mater, the University of Pennsylvania, Kathleen Hall Jameson, has an interesting little phrase that she has offered up as a uh, benchmark or a shibboleth or whatever you call it to analyze what news is useful and maybe even in the case of Time magazine the Twister itself is irrelevant, but the fact it's on the cover of Time, I think, is very significant. And the phrase she uses is relevance to governance. That every time you're offered a nugget of information, a factoid, an image, a story, you ask yourself, what use is this to me as an informed citizen of a, a self-governing polity? You know, do I need to know this uh, in the sense it'll make me a better actor on the national stage, the local stage, or the world stage. And if you think along these ways, you know, uh, little newspaper uh, features about flavored olive oils, or the latest films, or Windows 95, start to recede in importance, and you find yourself looking for those little overlooked bits of information that maybe will make you more able to decipher the secret connections, or as Tocqueville says, the secret springs of design beneath the surface of appearances. Relevance to governance. Relevance to governance. Well, David Fenimore, I want to thank you very much for joining us, but again, I'd like to ask you as the scholar if you could recommend an interesting book to us that you've read lately. I would recommend a new book by James Fallows along the lines of what we've been talking about. It's called Breaking the News how the media undermines American democracy. I think that's the subtitle. It was just published a few months ago. And there's another book uh, a few years before that, uh, William Grider, a book called Who Will Tell the People? And what both these books do is attempt to analyze the role of the press uh, in self-governance, how the press has perhaps betrayed its original role and serves interests other than those of the American people. Well, thank you for joining us on Radio Curious, David Fenimore. It's been a real pleasure, Barry. Thank you. Horace Greeley was brought to us through the personage of Chautauqua scholar David Fenimore. 
during the 1996 Democracy in America Chautauqua series that visited Ukiah, California. The book that Horace Greeley recommended is Democracy in America by Alexis de Tocqueville. David Fenimore recommends Breaking the News, How the Media Undermine American Democracy by James Fallows and Who Will Tell the People by William Grider. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, www.radiocurious.org. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.